Jesus, thank you for Sean. Lord, thanks for um, the life that he lives before you. God, that is the first thing that he's bringing to us today. God, we pray that you would speak through this life, God. Lord, I thank you for the, the preparation, God, the, the hard work that goes into thinking about what you're trying to say to a group of people in a room, Lord, people that come from all different sorts of places, different perspectives, different experiences throughout the week, Lord. And that, Lord, in some beautiful and mysterious way, your spirit takes all of these words and holds them together, God, and brings them to us. And so, Lord, would you speak to us individually, God? Would you speak to us collectively? Lord, I pray a blessing over Sean. I thank you for his life. I thank you for his love for you and his love for your church. And I pray that we would be blessed by uh, his hard work today. We pray all these things in your beautiful name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Ian. Cool. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you guys? How are y'all? Good? Cool. Um, yeah. I'll say we're moving. Lauren and I are moving to New York uh, in a month or two or at some point in the future. We're figuring out we're literally leaving right at the second service to go to New York and look at apartments. So pray for blessings for that. Um, but I'm going to start off uh, with the scripture reading today. Um, it's from Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord, Jesus, and your love for all his people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Hear the word of the Lord. Sorry, that's the PTS training inside of me, that part right there. So um, would you pray with me? <clears throat> Holy Spirit, come. You're welcome here. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Right. Well, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic text, Creation and Fall, starts off with an incredible line. He says, the church of Christ bears witness to the end of all things. He does not write that the church witnesses to the beginning of new things, but witnesses to the end of all things. I think Ephesians makes a very similar claim when it asks us that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which God has called us the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people. It asks that we see the inheritance that we have been given, the inheritance, something that has been given at the end of something else. Both Bonhoeffer and the writer of Ephesians believe that churches must see that they have been given an inheritance. They believe that we must see something that has been given to us from the end, from God's end. And by doing so, we can radiate the presence of God and live in service of our neighbors. God has called a people to do God's work, and that's us. 
Yet both Bonhoeffer and Ephesians also insist that Christian communities not allow God's activity to be some abstract idea or something left just in the past, something to be examined dispassionately, some text or something. This is vitally the in-his-people part that we see in verse 18. There is an ongoing activity of God that needs to be carried on by the people of Jesus in ways that are relevant to the creation that's around the rest of us. If God's activity was just a script, something written long ago, then we would simply be trying to apply those eternal best practices onto the world today. We're not trying to do that today. The world is dynamic. God's activity is dynamic. So instead of trying to rather apply best practices, what we should be doing now is trying to discern what God is doing around us, what God is doing in the midst of us. Because, and this is important, what has been given to us has already been done for us. That is God's activity. It's given to us. To use a crude analogy, and this is a very crude analogy, so you're going to have to roll with me on this. Um, I, I think of this kind of like, uh, like a great movie that keeps getting um, rebooted every generation. So think of like A Star is Born. It is a fantastic film. The old film is fantastic. It's not exactly relevant. It was written in like the 1930s. It's kind of weird to watch it now. But we have the new one that makes more sense. It takes place. It takes the same story and the same kind of general features of it and brings it into the future. It makes it relevant to the story, to what is happening around us now. So being faithful to God is not a matter of repeating what's already been done. It's a matter of making faithful and being faithful to what God is doing right now in front of us. So in the, in the next few minutes, I hope to show that Ephesians kind of embodies this both-and approach, especially the, the verse that the passage that we're looking at today. We see this in the prayer when it says on the one hand, I'm sorry, it doesn't say this, uh, the prayer is on the one hand framed um, or on the concept of the text, the biblical text is scripted. It shows us something that has been given to us. That's God's activity in the cross in the life of Jesus Christ. It does have a historical reality. It's objective and it's real and we can look at it. And yet, Ephesians is also inviting us to participate in an ongoing script, an ongoing activity one that is performed communally in and with the church and with each other. So some context on, on Ephesians. As Ian said in the first week of the series, when we open up these letters, we're reading other people's mail. We're not getting something that says, Dear Sean, Dear Ian, uh, Dear Courtney, or whoever. We're getting stuff that says, To so-and-so at such a time of place 2,000 years ago in the ancient Mediterranean. That's how most of the Pauline letters function. Interestingly, the letter of Ephesians, the one we're looking at today, is more directly addressed to the church universal. There's less of that kind of specific information. And, and this whole first chapter that we're looking at is all about Jesus Christ, all about the inheritance given to the, the global church. So for us, it makes it a little easier. We can just kind of dive into the story. It's, it's written a little more. We can imagine ourselves in the story a little bit easier, I think. And in that way, Ephesians is not to a single geographic location. Uh, it's not to a single time or single place, but it's rather to all people who have centered their lives around Jesus. Again, that's us. But obviously, Ephesians was written in a specific time, a specific place. It was written in the context of the Roman Empire, uh, that thing that we all know have loved to come to hate um, because they crucified Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Uh, it's still massive. It's exerting its influence across the empire. Um, and even maybe 20 or 30 years ago before, before this letter was written, they, had they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. So they're doing things that are bad. They're doing things that are not good for religious folk. 
But in the midst of those struggles, the churches in Ephesus, the churches that are being addressed in this letter, are keeping the faith. And their example is instructive to us today, especially as they lived under incredibly difficult circumstances. And so as a general letter addressed to many churches, the letter in Ephesians reminding the universal church, us, that which we participate in, is that everyone is participating in God's activity, in God's script. A script that stands and has written over all the other scripts that attempt to tell us a story that is not God's story. And so this leads us to the prayer that is the focus of the message today. The hope of this prayer is that Christians would see God's activity as something that has been written down and given to them in Jesus Christ, but also something that is ongoing, something that keeps going on through time and history. And as we've already seen, the churches in Ephesus are already living into that plan. That's why the writer is so thankful for them. They have already begun to act and think from the end, as Bonhoeffer puts it. Now, I think we can understand the scripted and, kind of scripted and scripting activity in three points. I'll say them all, and then we'll dive into them a little bit more. First, God has given us our beginning, our middle, and our end. God has given us the story. Second, all of creation was made to respond to this story. And third, the church has a unique call to show all the world what it's like to participate in the ongoing activity of God. All right, so first point. God has scripted the beginning, the middle, and the end of our story. God has bound God's self to creation through love. This is the meaning of, of Ephesians 1.10, where the writer says that with all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. The life and work of Jesus reveals that humanity is not self-grounded. We do not find our identities exclusively in ourselves. God has given us that story. God has done that work. And in Ephesus, the churches that we're reading about have already shown great love towards their community, and they represent the self-giving love of God. The Ephesians recognize that God is their creator and Jesus Christ is their redeemer, and they're living into that in the face of the instability of the Roman Empire. Yet, the writer of Ephesians also knows that churches are imperfect. Churches are imperfect. They would have known about all the issues facing the early church. So, for example, the first council of the early church happened in 50 CE, about 15 years after Jesus died. It was not 325, not a couple hundred years later. It was 15 years after Jesus died. And what were they arguing about? Who can eat at the table and who can be circumcised or who should be circumcised? That's a whole other sermon. We don't have to get into that. The point is, is that the people who had a real physical experience of Jesus Christ were already fighting 15 years after Jesus was resurrected. People who had a real memory, a real experience of Jesus, were already fighting with each other. And so it's important to point out, even though God has given us our beginning, our middle, and our end, and God has redeemed us, that does not mean that we are perfect. I think we like to pretend that we're perfect. At least I do. Lauren would like to say that sometimes, I think. <laughs> um, but even after we have been redeemed, we are still rely on God for our story. We still rely on God to give us our beginning, our middle, and our end. And we need to be reminded of that at all times. When we don't live into it, we lose sight of who, our, of who we are. So what our redemption does do, if it doesn't make us perfect, is that it helps us grasp the reality that we are creatures and that God is our creator. 
and that we need God for our care. Grasping that reality helps us kind of pivot our relationship with God and understand who we are in relation to God. So that which is created is good, and that which is redeemed is good, but it is not God. And we need God to make sense of everything in our lives at all times. We need constant resurrecting. Now, next week in Ephesians 2, we begin to get at sin, and so I'm not going to try and say too much there, although that would be a fun sermon to preach. Um, But I will say two things about sin. What should not have been came into being, and what could have been, I'm sorry, excuse me, uh, what could have been did not happen in creation, and what should not have been came into being. What could have been was a life of radical obedience to God and community with one another and all of creation. This would have framed our world and our relationships with each other in exclusively relationships with God, in exclusively relation to God. That obviously is not the case. We struggle with this. Our own internal lives tell us this all the time. What should not have been and what actually came into being is a world that has turned in on itself. We constantly turn in on ourselves and look to our own needs and our own desires and our own habits and things that make us happy. And yet, God does not leave us there. God stands in the way of that fragility and points us outside of ourselves and excavates us and points us away towards other people and towards God. God has given us that, our beginning, our middle, and our end. And if those things are not received, we're left in confusion. So hence in Ephesians 1.17, they're asked to receive the prayer to know that Christ gives a spirit of wisdom and revelation. The revelation is that God stands in the way of the nothingness in Jesus Christ and tells us about our beginning, our middle, and our end. And so this is the second point. All of creation was made to participate in that activity, in that story. But, as we know, we do not let yet live in the end. We live in the middle. God has acted and acts freely and continues to act lovingly towards us. In Ephesians 1.20, we see, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and raised him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The power of God is at work in all creation. That's what it's saying to us. God is at work regardless of who's participating in that activity. But as I've said... The work should have an effect on human beings who claim to love Jesus Christ, right? Those who claim to be descendants of the original activity. And again, we've seen this in the activity of the Ephesians. They have shown love toward all the saints, as the writer says. But being that creation is fallen and imperfect, they still need to develop discernment about what those things are, about what God's activity is, and what the things are that stand in the way of God's activity. So the corruption, the sin, that is ongoing. But the redemption, that is also ongoing as well. And God continually gives that to us. And so in this way, what we do here every single Sunday is absolutely necessary. We need this space to remind ourselves that God loves us, that God has acted, and that God continues to act. When we sing songs, when we preach, when we pray for each other, when we do communion, all those things should remind us that God has acted and that we are invited into God's acting now. And yet, and this is the third point, the church does not control the script. However much we would like to, however much we would like to put Jesus into the world and through our force, that is not what God has told us to do. We see this in in Ephesians. It doesn't say that the church was exalted to the heavenly places. Jesus Christ is. The church is to be the body of Christ, which follows the guiding activity of the head. 
And by following that guiding activity, we're constantly reminded, unfortunately for us sometimes, that we serve a God who is radically for others. God is radically for us as individuals in our little communities, but God is also radically for everyone else too. So Christ tells the church, follow the head, but be a part of the body. And in that body, be independent with the rest of the world, the rest of creation, and listen to it. So I wanted to turn to Diedrich Bonhoeffer to kind of illustrate this point. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Bonhoeffer was a uh, German theologian, pastor. Uh, he was a Lutheran. Um, he was also a martyr. Uh, he was an exceptional academic. Um, I think when he was 13, he said he wanted to become a theologian, which was good for him. That's a weird goal for a 13-year-old, but, you know, more power to him. Uh, and he achieved that goal. Um, by 21, he had his first PhD, and then he accumulated a couple other degrees after that, because why not? Um, so he was an exceptional academic. He dedicated his entire life to the intellectual pursuit and love of God and love of the church. He came to study here in America at Union Seminary in New York, um, where he was exposed to black spirituals, uh, and he would study with the Niebuhrs and some other people who were influenced by the social gospel tradition. And it was there at Union that he experienced a conversion of sorts, a, a conversion that moved his path away from pure academic work to real on-the-ground work. And it was because of that conversion that he would go back to Germany uh, to begin the Confessing Church, to stand in resistance to Nazi Germany. And ultimately, that conversion led Bonhoeffer to his martyrdom uh, and his death on a cold, gray morning in April 1945, just a few weeks before the camp was liberated. I think that Bonhoeffer is the kind of Christian that the writer of Ephesians had in mind. You see, Bonhoeffer could have stayed in America. He was invited to teach at Union. He could have done the academic thing. He could have continued that work. It would have been great work. He would have had a great influence on the church, I'm sure. But he did not do that. He went back to his home country and resisted the powers of his day because he had seen the end of all things. With Ephesians, he understood that Jesus Christ is radically for everyone. All things have been lifted up to Jesus. And Bonhoeffer believed that Christians must act as if this is true. And he did. And if God is seen to be entirely for humanity in Jesus, God must never be understood as seeking to displace creation to make space for a separate thing like a church. As Bonhoeffer wrote in his magnificent letters, and this is not light summer reading, but I do encourage you guys to read his letters and papers from prison. Just don't do it on a beach. Do it when like, you can talk to people afterward, because some of it would be quite dark. But it's good. As Bonhoeffer wrote in his magnificent letters, if Christ is really the Lord of the world, then the church is not to regard itself as specially favored, but as rather belonging wholly to the world, entirely to the world. That is because Jesus reconstituted everything in his life, death, and resurrection. God is present in all of creation and is actively ordering everything towards God's ends. Christ's work points to this activity and a new way of being, a being for others, as Bonhoeffer puts it. And this radical being for others means that is one that Bonhoeffer lived out in his martyrdom. I will quickly inject and say, I do not think God is calling everyone to be a martyr. Do not take that away from this message. But I do think and Bonhoeffer shows in an Ephesians kind of way that Christians should risk themselves in real ways to bear responsibility for the world. And Christians acting in the institution of the church, us, I think we must imitate God's self-humiliation 
and seek to be inside of the world, in the middle of things. The responsibility of the Christian, then, is to serve the neighbor and her needs and his needs, as serving God is not an infinite and unattainable task, but as Bonhoeffer put it, the neighbor within reach in any given situation. This is ultimately the end of all things. That God stands in the way of nothing, gives us a script, and invites Christians to participate in that activity in, with their neighbors in any given situation. So I'm going to invite the band back up. I'm a guest speaker, so I go a little shorter, I guess. Um, but is the band here? No? Yeah, you guys come on up. <laughs> I want some holy music behind me on this final part. I'm just kidding. That's not, I don't believe that. The truth that Bonhoeffer shows us is that Jesus is so bound up in taking responsibilities for others that we cannot think of his identity without this defining for the other trait. So what does this mean for us? Well, Elisa had some great ideas, and Ian kind of hinted this earlier. Elisa had great ideas last week about what this means. As I'm sure many of you know, we're currently meeting in a space that is literally right next to some of the um, affordable housing in Princeton, New Jersey. There's a lot of um, undocumented workers there, immigrants. Um, and something that really pained us in our kind of discerning activity is that we learned that there's something like 80 kids who do not have a legal guardian there. There's broken families. There's people who just don't have help. Many kids lack health insurance. Um, yeah, and there's real problems. So some things that we're going to be rolling out, and this, these are very loose, these are very up in the air. You're, if you sign up for this, you're not saying you're going to do every single thing. But these are just some ideas that we're discerning as a community. The first is that um, we're going to be putting on some once-a-week soccer program for the kids. Our Ecclesia kids and the kids in that community are hopefully going to come together and we can be in community with them because we are meeting right next to them on a weekly basis. They're a part of our family. They're a part of our community. And we're a part of their community. We're also going to be starting to offer some tutoring services. Uh, many of us in here are related to the university or the seminary in some way, so we're highly educated. Um, and so even if you're not a subject matter expert in whatever field that might need tutoring, you can probably help in some kind of way. Um, and we also discovered that a lot of seniors are lonely in the pandemic, post-pandemic. And so we're going to be trying to set up some kind of quarterly or monthly uh, just visitation with them, just hang out with them and just be with them. And so, so a lot of this stuff is coming down the pipe. It's very loose. It's very up in the air. But there are neighbors in our community who need our help. And we need their help, too, if we're honest about it. And so we're going to... Um, do communion, close in prayer, and all that stuff. And as that stuff is happening, as you're worshiping God, I just ask that you just kind of pray with yourself and just kind of discern if God is calling you to participate in that kind of community activity. So I'm going to close in prayer. We'll do communion and do some worship. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We ask that you give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you and your work better. Enlighten our hearts, help our eyes see and our ears hear, so that we may know the hope to which you have called us, and so that we can participate in that calling as you order our steps in the world around us. Amen. Friends, we arrive at the point of the service where we invite you to the table.
And as Sean opened those words for us, Paul's prayer for us is that we would know the hope that he has for us. And the hope that he has for us is that Jesus has removed every barrier. As Sean is talking about, barriers to people thriving, to, to young kids being cared for and educated, but also barriers to our own sense of shame, our own sense of accusation, the narrative that we tell ourselves. Jesus is trying to say, I have conquered all of that by my blood, by my resurrection. And so today as we come to the table, I pray that we see the hope that Jesus has for us, that it is for us, not just for others. Because I think so often we sort of have this experience where we're like, oh, that's beautiful, that's nice, that's a nice truth for everybody else. But then our own internal monologue says that's not for us. That is a lie. The truth of the matter is, is that Jesus loves you, that Jesus has called you to himself, that Jesus has invited you to be a part of his mission in the world to redeem and to gather all things. And the way that we begin to step into the story is simply at a table. On the night Jesus was arrested, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood poured out for the sins of the world. And friends, today... Jesus invites us to his table. It is his invitation to step into the true story of the entire world.